These tools are for you to use. These tools are for you to use. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I'm a comedian in Chicago, and I survived a coma, and now I'm asking all sorts of people questions about how to live life, the meaning of life. I I try to avoid saying the meaning of life, but that's what the show's about. I mean, why, why fight it? You know, my guest this week is Dylan Rodriguez, who is just cool as shit, man. He's a founding member of Critical Resistance, the organization that was founded to abolish the carceral state on a national level. Um, They have published many guides to, for instance, the differences between reformist and truly abolitionist uh, measures when it comes to um, safety policies, police policies um, on the, the legal level, but they're, they're like some of the OG organizations uh, when it comes to the abolitionist movement that has developed, you know, recently. And Dylan points out in our full conversation, which is on Patreon, that 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 abolitionist movement dates back to the 90s, which I realized is fucking 30 years ago now. So in in my mind, I'm like, it's new, which, yes, relatively it's new, but a history of activism and scholarship that go be- goes back to the 90s is, you know, nothing to sneeze at. So anyway, Dylan is cool. Uh, because I, I became aware of him when he spoke at uh, one of these Zoom panels I went to about police abolition. And then I checked him out on the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast. I've linked to that in the show notes because it was a great introduction. He talks about his book, White Genocide. And it was just, it was very righteous. It set my head straight on a lot of things. And sorry, (laughs) not White Genocide. The book is called White Reconstruction. Anyway, you can find the actual name of the book and a link to it in the show notes. Uh, The book's called White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logics of Genocide. So you can understand my confusion. Um, I've also put a link to other things that Dylan talks about in the episode, including an article he wrote about um, an invitation to a safety committee at the University of California, which is the system he works in, uh, a book that called Abolition for the People, edited by Colin Kaepernick for Kaepernick Publishing that he was a part of, uh, Critical Resistance's website, and the resource guide for teaching and learning abolition that Critical Resistance published recently. It's a very, very cool guide. So if you're like, whoa, Dave, you say you're a comedian and then immediately say nothing funny and just start talking about carceral state and police abolition, what the fuck is happening? Check out this learning guide. It's very, very helpful. 
Got a lot of great books and articles if you're not trying to dive in super deep. I think listening to that Millennials Are Killing Capitalism episode is a great start, too. I actually think this podcast might be the best introduction to him, because instead of him being purely on his typical academic uh, beat, I've got him talking about death and funerals and moments he'd relive. And of course, those things involve his activist journey. Uh, and I was glad to hear that. But it's also just getting to know him as a dude. In terms of that journey, the things he talks about, he talks about community. It, it's just suffused throughout this, this episode. And I, that's, that's, one thing that I think shapes people's conceptions of death and the afterlife and the idea of legacy and what happens after we die, I think that shapes it quite a bit. The communities that people apart are a part of, the individuality versus, um, well, he makes a distinction between individuality and individualism. I'm getting into some of the heady stuff. Dylan has a way of talking that is abstract but clear at the same time. This is a heady episode. It might be a hard one to listen to in the background. But I think it is a fucking hot one, man. I really do. And in addition to this community stuff, he started talking a lot about humility and coming from 12-step program recovery Humility to me is is right sizedness. It's not like, oh, I'm a piece of shit, but it's also not, oh, I am the shit. It's somewhere in the middle. It's like, I'm just a dude making a podcast. And that is something that I really needed, to be honest. I have been in major simultaneous, I'm a piece of shit and the greatest fucking giant to ever walk the earth mode. And... Dylan talking about humility and just treating me with the respect. He was grateful to come on the podcast. I was very grateful that he accepted and to talk to him. There was a mutuality there, a respect that really made me happy. So that helped me, and I hope it helps you. I hope this this starts you thinking about things. I don't ask anyone to share my political beliefs. I just ask you to listen to the show. Um, and if you, you're this far in... I mean, you might as well keep going, you know? In fact, you might as well join the Patreon to hear the full conversation. I post just the raw audio uh, on the Patreon. You can get that if you donate the cost of a cup of coffee a month, $5. Um, if you want to donate 15 bucks a month, it's about, you know, if you think it's worth the price of a meal, then you can get shouted out. Those are the Pigeon Level subscribers. Those people are Fred Fidoa, Susie Carroll, Katie Llewellyn, Kurt Chang, Shuba Singh, Debo, and John Lee. Very grateful to them. I also want to thank the person who reviewed the podcast. I, I asked for more ratings and reviews. I said I would read reviews that come in. Now, I happen to know that the person who reviewed the show since last week was last week's guest, Joe Scott, but hey, I'm not above having that kind of pyramid scheme. So 
Joe's review, uh, the the title, the title and the review cut off. So the the title says, "Dave died for your sins. What more do you?" I assume that mean that is what more do you want? She writes, "Death is a hard topic to cover, and Dave does it effortlessly, week to week. His personal journey, his years as a performer and teacher, and his wonderful voice. Thank you." make him the perfect person. And it cuts off there. So I'm actually just going to take that and say, those things make me the perfect person. And now I am completely out of the humility zone. But I'm grateful for those those ratings and reviews. Listen, if, if you've skipped over this part, you're not even listening. I, I'm saying if you happen not to have skipped over this part, it's okay if if you're glazing over mentally, you're skipping over this part. That's totally fine. Honestly, I do a lot of the same. But for those who are paying attention, who are able, there are a lot that there's there's a the algorithm is big. The platforms are big. I'm an independent publisher artist. I don't like the word creator, but that's what I'm doing is creating something here. And if you're able to Subscribe to the show, show it so it shows up automatically for you every Tuesday. If you're able to rate it five stars, or again, one star is fine, but you have to review it if you're going to do a one star. Um, but especially the reviews. Honestly, that is the shit. When I hear guests tell me they had a great time, that's the kind of feedback that keeps me going right now. So if you're able to review the show um, or even just rate it on Apple podcasts, that would be great. But especially if you go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr and subscribe there, that would be even greater. So now I am done with the intro and I will just say, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dylan Rodriguez as much as I did. I grab your whip and take it back to Shotown. When I'm in Shotown, I treat it. I'll, I'll be curious what you think of this. Okay. So over the pandemic, I got into Survivor, um, hmm. which is, at the time, it was 40 seasons, and I watched them in four months, Woo. which is just a, a like a kind of a marker of depression, I think. Sort That's of a commitment. Yeah. yeah. It's a literal yeah. – I, I measured it out. It's a 40-hour-a-week job with with. I was going to say – I was just days. trying to do the math in my head. <laughs> it's you too much, it, man. It's too much. Short, and like, so, oh, my God. How but, much time is that? So it's, it's too much time. But uh, I love the show, obviously, but – one of the like all-time great players is a cop. And when mm. I found when I started mm. just kind of, you know, in icebreaker conversations in political spaces, mm. I would mention Survivor or something. And then people would DM me and be like, Oh, I love Survivor too, but fuck Tony. And the thing I had to admit was I actually, as a player, I yeah. I like yeah. this guy. You know, yeah. and to yeah. me, it's more interesting to reckon with the fact that i enjoy this personality on this fucking yeah. island yeah yeah then yeah. to just to just go he's a cop and thus therefore i experience yeah. all pop culture through the yeah. lens of my i don't know does that make sense yes um and your response is an honest one um 
And, right. You know, which it, is not to say I'm like, one. oh, you know, I like this guy. Maybe I like cops. No, you know, that's not yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Stay. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I hear. No, I think I think the point you're making is a really it's really critical in ways that you may or may not fully fully realize here, because on the one hand, there is the kind of knee jerk scripted reaction, which is like, all right, fuck that cop. Right. Once you realize right. the dude is a cop. Yes, right. Yes, like, yes. oh, you might have been you might have been team Tony guy's name. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony. Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Might have been team Tony. He realized to realize he was, you know one of the warriors in blue, right. like, oh, fuck that guy. However, your response actually indicates just how powerful the culture of propaganda actually has become, right? That, that cop propaganda is so much more than just cops, the reality, the original, the original reality show, right? Mm-hmm. It's so much more than what network and corporate news media put out there that is kind of a unilateral flow of information and representation from police and district attorney to the public. It is actually popular cultural maneuverings that, that put cops into these kind of civilian, lovable, you know, game playing situations where you actually are drawn into identification with them to the point you're actually cheering for them. Most importantly, we over, this term is overused. It's not one I usually use, but in this case, I will use it. It humanizes them, mm-hmm. right? Humanize is usually a liberal term that people will invoke to think about um, some kind of short-term uh, practice that will mitigate, but not necessarily solve systemic state and other forms, capitalist and other forms of violence, colonial, other forms of violence against oppressed people, right? So they'll talk about, we need to humanize homeless people. We need to humanize right, right. incarcerated people. What a, so it's a bullshit term usually, right? Because it actually doesn't mean anything, you know, like humanize it. Cause, cause what it presumes is that you did not, you, you may or may not have thought about these people as human prior. And then the problem is actually you, right? So the project is not to humanize those, those people over there. Y- your project is actually um, to do some serious reflection in community with other people so that you can find some access to a form of humanity where you're not act- actively dehumanizing people, right? So you're right. actually the problem because right. you're actually involved in the practice of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the problem is not that they need to be humanized. You need to stop dehumanizing. All right. So there's that. However, in the realm of propaganda, like this thing you just experienced, right? It seems so fucking mundane. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. fuck it. It's a game show. Dude happens to have a cop. He's a cop as a day job. Um, I think he was a great player in this game show, whatever. It's it's the it's this kind of culture of humanizing people who are in a position where they're actually extra human. Right. And that shit is powerful. That that is that is that is yeah. the stage of propaganda mm-hmm. and counterinsurgency that I don't think a lot of folks, especially activists, scholars and others. Right. I don't think a lot of folks have their minds fully around that, um, which is why it is that you have this bullshit going on with the New York City mayor, for example. Right. Right. I mean, what? Uh, the bullshit going on, for example, with the Chicago mayor. So you have people who present a certain subject position that attracts identification and, and like the role that they're actually performing is if it's not active repression, it's at least counterinsurgency. Right. And the way it works is through is through people, the way in which they draw people into identification with them, including rooting for them on a game show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It isn't the whole fucking world turning into a game show anyways. You know what I mean? Like if we think about if we think about everything from electoral politics to the day to day, the way people consume and process that shit, it's like these fuckers are characters in a game show. So the one you root for is the one you identify with. Right. And then you're willing to do this this kind of liberal bullshit work of humanizing them against their extra human role in the world, which is to police 
Right. You know what I mean? It's to oppress. It's to it's to maintain and militarize borders and hierarchies between populations of people. Um, oftentimes, the very people whom are identifying them most powerful with them most powerfully. Um, me- meaning, you know, in Chicago, right? Like this is the black radical and revolutionary and feminist and queer and abolitionist community that I'm that I'm in community with in Chicago, right? That's their biggest battle, is with this is with this kind of version of of mainstreamed, popularized, um, common. Black folks identification with Mayor Lightfoot, yeah. right? Which is weird. Which is weird, you know. And it's, and, but I'm saying I'm picking up Villaraigosa when he was mayor, you know, when he was in LA, right? Like that was some deep shit going on with the local local Latinx, you know, Central American, Mexicano, Chicano community. It, it's deep. It's, it's everywhere. It's deep. And so what you're talking about is symptomatic of this kind of popular cultural form that uh, the culture of policing has taken. As, as this deep counterinsurgency where folks are actively drawn into the practice of humanizing people who inhabit an extra human power. Yeah, right. you're talking about humanization, not from the liv- liberal lift them up to humanity, right. but from this other perspective of draw them down from gods to humanity. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And it's about you identifying with them uh, in, order, in order to mystify their inhabitation, the way in which they perform extra human power all the time, right? And, and like, look, if you, if you talk to former military, former police, right, especially people who have like left those positions because of disaffection, because of mental health, because they were kicked out, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and, and I don't think this is just anecdotal. I think this is structural. Almost, probably almost to a person when they're being honest with you, they will say, that the daily, that the daily practices, uh, the daily kind of resp- you know state um, bestowed responsibilities and obligations of bearing the power of being extra human, right? God power, you know what I mean? Like God power, right? Right? The, the mm-hmm. license to kill, you know what I mean? Um, knowing that the law was behind them, that culture was behind them, all that shit, right? That that stuff was not sustainable for them. You know, in really serious ways, right? Like, and not not only that, but but dude, Tony, that was on Survivor, right? Like, he's never not a cop, right? Yeah. And that's part of that part. That's part of what's insidious about the humanizing, uh, the humanizing dynamics that happen with with these forms of cop propaganda. Copaganda is is that it's a sham to think that people who um, police and military, you know, engage in militarization, forms of militarization, policing for, for a living, that they somehow step out of that power when they're not on the clock. It doesn't work that way. And that is the main thing you hear from folks, right? It's like, I never was not in that state of mind is what people will say, right? Right. And it affected my relationships with people. Um, This is why I think it's at this point, a pretty well-known, you know, popular fact, which is that, that, um, you know, people that are in the military and police, and by the way, not just cisgender men, but people in the military and police have, you know, some of the highest rates of, um, harm, you know, committing harm against other people, particularly the, the traditional category of so-called domestic violence, but you right. want to talk about so-called domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence, but also self-harm, mm. right? Su- suicidality, ideations, um, people who are, you know, alcoholism, et cetera. I mean, that shit is deep and there's a reason for it. It's because, because the burden of taking on that role actually, um, it's extra human. It's extra human. You are not, it, you know, you, you should not be bearing that power um th- those who are most comfortable with it are usually fucking sociopaths <laughs> you know yeah. um 
I'm, I'm not, and I mean that in the clinical. No, way, no, right? no, I'm not for a fucking sure. Trained yeah. psychologist, but like, it's usually sociopaths who are like most um, comfortable with that and can carry it out for a long time, right? Because nobody can compartmentalize that shit, right? You can't really compartmentalize power that way, right? right? Which is, you know, which which brings you back to that original point you made about like being a parent, which is why I'm a fucked up parent. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I I feel the need uh, to confess about copaganda because 2020 was my 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 sort of uh you know to the extent that i am an organizer or 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 mm-hmm. learning from people you know got rekindled i i i say that i kind of like returned to punk rock first principles mm-hmm. in 2020 cuz mm-hmm. i grew up as like a punk rocker in middle school and high school and uh the sort of anti racist yeah uh never was a skinhead but the skinheads against racial yeah. prejudice prejudice and uh, a, a lot of ska, like Asian man records right in, in okay. California. And uh, and then I just like went silent because I was just like, okay, the thing is just to – the systems are too powerful. The best I can do is just be a decent person myself and help the right. people around me. And then in 2020, I see people who have way more reason to give up than I do who are out there fighting. And I was like, oh, okay. I actually have to be way more activated than yeah. I am. But yeah. so, and that's where like my abolition journey started. Mm-hmm. But it was after, and and I don't have many acting gigs, but it was it was after an acting gig on the show Chicago PD, where I pay I played mm. an undercover cop, uh, undercover as like a drug addict buying buying some drugs two line part and then i was like well fuck now i gotta donate 250 bucks to asada's daughters which is way more than i've ever donated to anything and i had to tell my agents i was like where i'm at with it now is i think i'll still be in shows with police because it's hard to avoid that but i was like no more cops i'm not gonna play any more police because i was just like Jesus Christ, I can't believe that was what I was doing, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, I feel you. Yeah. yeah. Look, yeah, I work yeah. for the fucking University of California, man. <laughs> right? So like so like shit is dirty. Right. Shit is dirty. And and like I would be the last one to try to say I'm above I'm above that nastiness of being caught up in these circuits of of you know repressive counterinsurgent shit, right? As it's like, look, one of my one of my Mentors who have always been mentor, Professor James Turner, one of the founders of Africana Studies, well, the founder really of Africana Studies um, at Cornell University. Um, shout out to Dr. Turner. He he said to a group of us, a whole classroom of us once, because we were going through this, you know, we always went through this, right? It's like, well, fuck, what do you do with this system, right? Right. It's like, how do you get out of the system? How do you, you know, we want to fucking transform or change or at least destroy the system. Like, that's a start, destroying it. Well, how the fuck do we do that? Like, we're in it. Dr. Turner, like he punched, he punctured right through all that little petty bourgeois bullshit that we were going through, mm-hmm. right? Because we were trying to find a kind of place of purity, right? A place of non of non implication, of non accomplice status, you know, or, or whatever. Re- really, a place of non responsibility, you know. Yeah. He, and he said, and his point, he, the point he made right away was like the problem. He said the problem that y'all don't understand is that this thing you're calling the system is fairly comprehensive at this point. And this is the, this is the mid '90s, early early mid '90s, right? He's like, the system is fairly comprehensive. It's pretty hard to find spaces that are actually outside. You know, it's pretty hard. It's challenging. It's possible, but it's pretty challenging. So he said, the question that you might want to be asking your collective selves 
is not whether you're in or out of the system, but whether you're for it or you're against it. Right. And if you ask that question in a deep and serious way, then 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 you might be able to get somewhere. Right. Because then you understand that there are so many layers of, uh, you know, kind of implication and development and whatever. I mean, where does money come from? Right. Like, where does your mm-hmm. income come? So it's like all that shit is is, is so dirty. It's so colonial. Um, it's so tied up in everything that actually requires reparation that the question really just becomes a political one rather than this kind of imaginary fantasy of being outside the system, right? So, so I feel what you're saying, which is to say, it's not, uh, you know, you can draw rough analogies to other lines of work where people make decisions. It's like, all right, this, this, this occupation is fucked up enough, but I'm making a choice that I'm not going to participate in X. Right. Right. And like, and like, the point is that you're also talking about it, right? Which is different than just not doing it, right? So it's like people talk about refusal all the time nowadays, right? And a lot of this kind of circles and communities that I roll with, right, is refusal, which I'm down with. I'm down with refusal. I love. I wish I would refuse more, right? So being around people who are down with the politics of refusal, it helps me, right? Like I think I think it it it, it helps me and it builds my courage to maybe start refusing more than I do, you know. At the same time that. I need that. And I benefit from that. I also want people to talk about why they're refusing as loudly as they yeah, fucking can, yeah, as sure. loudly as they can. Right. I refuse this because of G right. Of a, B, C, D, E, F, G. I refuse it because of that. Um, I mean, that's, I, I, I think, I think probably the first time, the first time I really thought about the need to make loud statements, you know, public statements about refusal was when, um, the chancellor at my university, my employer, um, invited me, his administration invited me to join their, it, it was some advisory committee on changing campus security, right? This is like, this is like 20 into 2021, like the, the sweep of campus-based, city-based, et cetera, police reform. So they, they knew my take because I kept showing up to events and, and basically fucking with people and be like, okay, so you're saying this, but it really means this, right? You're saying you're going to reduce police activity. What you're really doing is you're deputizing staff and faculty to do the work of policing out front and then call the police in. when. So that's really what you're doing. You're actually expanding police power, not reduce. That, that was me. That was like me yeah. and my, my community of people with cops off campus, all of us. We were all doing this. So, but they, they, they identified me because I'm probably the senior most person that was involved in that it wasn't is involved in police abolition movement um, for campuses. And so they're like, oh, what better way to legitimate the bullshit than to get that dude onto our committee, right? So they invited me on the committee and I wrote back, you know, in a domesticated genteel academic way to go fuck themselves, right? It's like, hell no. And then I realized that like, that actually isn't sufficient to just write back to them. Because I said, I said, for all these reasons, no, right? Like, I, I respectfully decline. Um, I fucking publish that shit. Like, on this, on this website that um, this guy, uh, you know, Chris Newfield and Michael Morans, um, Chris used to be at UC Santa Barbara, Michael's still over there at UCLA. They publish this stuff on the UC system all the time. It's like, anybody that wants to know anything critical or analytical about the University of California, go to their website, right? It's called Reclaim the University. Like, um, it's utotherescue.com, I believe. Um, and, and so I, I published my letter on there, you know, it was like a letter to the UC Riverside Chancellor. So I'm saying all of us need to find ways to articulate the grounds of the refusal. The light question I like to start with is paint your hell. Customized hell designed for you, Dylan Rodriguez. Oh man. Okay. Malcolm X said it best. 
right? Malcolm X said, he talked about how, I won't even quote him. I won't even paraphrase him. Y'all know, should know. If you don't know, go, go read his autobiography. Go fucking read his Wikipedia page, find something. Go look up what Malcolm X said about hell, right? I think that, that it's hard for me to separate my, my own individual hell from notions of collective hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I often think that I'm actually in it, right? I, I'll say that. And not because I personally individually am in it, which I try not to do. I try to disassociate myself from just purely individualized notions of hell. I think hell is a collective condition. Um, and, and I think, I think, I think there are so many geographies and places on this planet that are already, I'm Filipino, right? So like, you know, I'm, I'm the first one that was born stateside in my family. Mm. Um, and, and we used to visit the Philippines pretty much every other summer when I was, when I was young. Um, I haven't been there in 11 years, which I regret, but I'm hoping to go back soon. So if anyone has ever been to the Philippines and, you know, my family's upper middle-class family from the Philippines, you know, they, they have college degrees and whatnot. Um, there are places a few miles from where my father's family is, by the way, upper middle-class in the Philippines still means you have five families living in the same house, right? Sure, it's not the, sure. it's not the same as, 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 as in the U S. So like I say that with a global South third world colonial concept, you know, neo-colonial concept, upper middle class, just means you fucking got access to college is what it really means. Uh, there are places in the Philippines, not far from my, where my, my father's family still lives that, that are hell. They, they are absolute hell. Um, there are places not far from me here, man. Um, that, that, that are hell. So, but, but with that, I'll try to entertain your question and take it. All right. Like, like as, as a, for me, like what hell is like for me. Well, Hey, that's, it's how you interpret. There's not as much as it may seem like if I ever do have an agenda with a question, I'm completely open to that agenda being challenged. And in fact, you might find this interesting when I, when I, it's, it's very interesting and it does tend to sort along white people and people who yeah. aren't white lines Yeah. when it is, well, my next question is what do you hope happens when you die, which we'll get to, but a lot of white people, myself included, and I initially conceived the question like individually, what is this? What's a, what's a nice thing you imagine happening in the future? But a lot of other people challenged me and started talking about what they hope happens to future generations, what they hope happens on earth. And that was like, oh, wow, I didn't even consider that question. So I'm open to the collective hell answer. But if you want to provide a an individual hell, you're welcome to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so so I can I I can vacillate between both, right? Because I still I still value individuality, right? I just I'm against individualism ideologically and politically, but I value individuality. I think it's important yeah. to try to you know to be somebody, be be a, you know, to, to be in the world, right? To whatever capacity you can. Um so I'll say I'll say hell hell is anything I inhabit which is demoralizing. And I and I was thinking through this. Uh, as I was talking just now about the collective concept of hell, I'm thinking about like, what would it mean for me? Right. You're asking me a really personal question. So I'm trying to take it that way. Right. Yeah. So like, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, now that I've, now that I've kind of contextualized my answer by saying, all right, fuck individualism, but okay, let me go to that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let me go with that. So, so I think hell is any, any situation in which I am feeling the forces of demoralization and, and, and the truest hell for me is when, I can no longer identify the external forces 
that are trying, that are demoralizing me and I've internalized it. Mm. And I've begun, I've begun to just reproduce my own demoralization. It's just, it just, it just starts to feel embedded and wired into my existence. So I, I've been there many times, you know what I mean? I've been there What's many times. What's an example it's, of that? Um, I, I mean, I've been at the same institution as a faculty member here, University of California, Riverside. I've been here, this is my end of my 21st year here. I've been here fucking forever, man. It's the only, you know, it's the only professional scholarly university job. I came here straight from graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm w- w- leaving out details that would make people I care about vulnerable. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I will say this. I will say that there are regular instances of people that are brilliant, that are that are genius, um, and who I care about, as well as my own my own experience here, in which we are treated like we are trash by our colleagues, by our administrators. Sometimes by students, not but not so much. Usually, it's by colleagues and by administrators, where we are treated like absolute trash. Um, meaning that, you know, the 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 labor that we perform for the university, the teaching, the mentorship, um, the service, all that shit, like it's dismissed completely. But for a lot of us, it's it's our intellectual and creative work. Right. Like this is some this is part of the reason that a lot of us are in this line of work is because we have some space and, and, and room to do that work. Right. Which I always say, if I was doing a, a completely different line of line of if I was in a completely different profession, I would still be thinking and researching and writing and and or and trying to trying to organize and trying to be, you know, an activist and community with people. I would still be doing that anyways. Right. So this day job allows me to do that with a lot more leeway than most other day jobs do. But I'm under no illusion that this day job is friendly to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, given that I can't separate all those things I do from who I am um, as somebody trying to be human in this world, then the way that on the one hand, somebody like you, I, I, I feel your respect for the shit that I try to do, right? Like you invited me to your fucking show. Like I'm really honored by that. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like we have, we have some, some real tight space here to inhabit a reciprocal respect, you know what I mean? Reciprocal yeah. appreciation, right? Recipro- yeah. When, 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 when people close to me, when I are in this particular institution and our creativity, our intellectual work gets dismissed out of hand, right? Get, and usually gets, it gets called certain things, you know, mm. as a way to denigrate and, and, and just and just dismiss it completely. So it gets called, for example, I, I was quoting somebody about this the other day, um, the provost of this, one of the former provosts of this institution one time referred to ethnic studies scholarship um, and ethnic studies departments as boutique, boutique departments. Yikes. Okay. Like to the department, like I invited that motherfucker to a department meeting when I was department chair, when I was in ethnic studies. And he said, he was going on his bureaucraties and he goes, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And he goes, you know, then there's the, the boutique departments like ethnic studies. And w- back then it was called women's studies. And, blah. And, and it took me a minute to process that. Like, I don't think any of us really understood what he had said for probably like days and weeks afterwards. He probably meant it as a compliment. I, some I, yeah, I think he, I think it's it's some kind of administrative bureaucratic term right. for, you know, small departments. Or, so it was like clearly, clearly we were collateral. We were we were marginal. We were but it was really deeply degrading and insulting. Right. Like that shit. You know, and, and so to have. 
to have to have somebody just in in a breath like that, man, like in a breath, just say a word that they didn't even intention doesn't really matter a lot of times, right? But like I know that that dude did not. He wasn't actually trying to insult us. If he did, he would have just done it, right? Because mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what provosts do most of the time. Um, but like in a way that made it even more demoralizing. Yeah, that this dude thought that he was just saying something matter of fact that maybe was even modestly complimentary, and like we felt it like, oh, this dude just told us that 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 we could drop off this this university completely and nothing would matter. Right. Um, that's a basic example. But then nowadays, man. Um, you have all, all these kind of openly conservative and then kind of react closet reactionary, liberal reactionary um, faculty types, you know, many, many, many of whom are white, um, many of whom are not white, you know, just to clarify, to, just to just to brownify that. <laughs> um, but but they will dismiss some of the work that that my, my my community and that I do as social justice scholarship in a dismissive way. They mean that in a pejorative way. Right. Mm-hmm. They put it in this box called social justice scholarship as a way to just dismiss. It, it's it's the it's the academic version of what the right wing is now attacking is what they call critical race theory. And they have no fucking idea what critical race theory is. Yeah, of right? course. Of course. Right. So like so like it's it's that that shit is demoralizing, man. Like and so I'm just talking about at the level of the of, of the daily. Right. That shit is demoralizing. Um, um, so. Sorry for that. I mean, that's 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 just a really sorry. mundane example. Probably, probably no, I think the mundane is really helpful in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so, so no, so there's that. And then, and then, um, I think, I think another, another thing that I would, I would bring up to as, as part of what is, what is so deeply demoralizing is hypocrisy, um, kind of the political hypocrisy and the political inaction of so many people who, who, who would have you think that they're otherwise. Um, and I think that's come up in, in even more conspicuous ways since the rebellions of 2020, um, in the age of social media, in uh, the fact that so much of the rebellion that happened globally in 2020, uh, much of it was also happening in sites either on or adjacent to university, college, and junior college, for that matter, even some K through 12 campuses, right? Students were involved, like teachers involved, sometimes, you know, um, administrators every now and then they would profess solidarity with the rebellions mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, but I think what's really demoralizing as well is uh, to just see the depth of the neglect and contradiction between the curated performances that so many people, especially my colleagues, have around issues of liberation, of justice, of abolition, um, of opposing normalized systemic historical state violence, like the performances of that shit, right? Being, being loud as fuck about it, putting it on their social media, putting it on their websites, putting it in their syllabi even. And, and then two simultaneous things. One is the refusal to engage in collective forms of activity to directly challenge those structures of violence. Collective, I've, I emphasize yeah. collective forms of activity. It's not a fucking individual academic research agenda. It's not a CV point. It's not a you know a social media identity. Collective because the collective part's hard. All right. So one is that, and then secondly, the willingness of so many of these same folks. And now I'm not just talking about my colleagues. I'm talking about people that are involved in kind of the nonprofit industrial complex world, right? People who are basically professional activists, so to speak, right? Professional advocates and activists. Right how many of the folks from those two overlapping communities are willing to be drawn into administrative um, administrative rituals, administrative ceremonies, administrative committees 
that that have that, that are actively stealing the language of, of abolition, of anti-colonialism, of black radicalism, you know, of revolution, and and repurposing it toward a re-legitimation of things like the policing and carceral and criminal justice and military and colonial apparatus, right? You know, so so that that shit is demoralizing. That's hell. So in a lot of ways, I'm in it, right? So in, it, so look, man, like to respond to this question in in, a, in another way, I feel like a lot of the work I do as as a thinker, as a writer, as a teacher, as an activist is is in response to the hell that I, I am feeling around me. You know, um, I think it's part of the reason why. I'm so animated by um, really deep anger. <laughs> um, that's that's my main. That's the main way I think in which I'm wired, and I'm, I'm actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm good with that. Like I, I've said it a lot publicly lately, but you know, I, I I fucking had to go through a year anger management counseling. Um, yeah, yeah, this is years, seven years ago or so, because the option was I was going to get kicked out of my house, right? I mean, straight up, I was going to kick. It was like you need to. So I did it. I did it for like a year, right? And it was just it was a typical, you know prototypical like group anger management counselor yeah but but what brought me into it was when the counselors the first day they're like they said the reason you're here is because you have to be here we understand that but we're going to tell you right now there's actually nothing wrong with anger i was like okay cool i'm in then yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) i'm in um but i feel like that's i I have a role to play on this you know in this realm while i'm here and 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 my anger will be central to the way in which I try to fulfill whatever role that might be at the time, right? And and that anger is that anger comes from my, the, the the different ways in which I experience these forces of demoralization um, for me and for others around me. Hey, it's Dave. I am taking a break from the guest for a moment to tell you about my newsletter, Definitive Answers. Short for definitive answers to unanswerable questions. Basically, every week I send an essay in which I am squeezing current events in my own life for insights into creativity, culture, mental health, the kind of stuff I talk to guests about, but it's just me. So if you want essays like that, if you want music recommendations, a mood board of links and worthy places to donate, Think of it like an old school alt weekly, but just from my very overly sensitive comedy man's perspective. If that sounds good to you, you should subscribe. It's called Definitive Answers. You can go to thisisdavemar.substack.com or just click the link in the show notes. And I'd love to have you and tell me if you like it. Okay, back to the guest. So let's talk about not being on this realm. All right. What do you hope happens when you die? Um, I was thinking a lot about this when I, when I learned about your podcast and you invited me, right? I was like, oh, fuck, man. I think about, I think about, here's what's funny though. This is why it's hard to answer. I think about death all the time. Okay. Right? I do. I think about death all the time. I'm fucking, we're surrounded by that shit, right? And I think part of the culture we're in, this culture of narcissism, this culture of, you know, uh, hegemonic and dominant Christianity, et cetera. Um, it, it, it kind of does not encourage us to think about death, right? Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it does not encourage that, but I think about it all the fucking time. I think about mortality all the fucking time. Um, In what I don't way? think you're thinking about well, other people. You're thinking about your own. Cause it, yeah. part of it is yeah. for me is I would love if I had some guest that was, a, that fucking cured me of the panic. I think of when I think of not existing. Yo, so, so like, so like the panic, 
it's anxiety for me more than panic. Like mm-hmm. at this point, because I still have it in my mind, like in my heart that I'm still 29 years old, even though I'm going to be 49 this year. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, fucking, I'm still invincible and shit, even though I'm not, cause I wake up and my back hurts. Right. And, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but, but part of, part of this, the reason I, you know, the reason I think about death so much is that we're in this weird culture of narcissism, right? Where, where we think that our death should actually mean something. I'm talking about each of us, mm-hmm. right? We think that our death, that, you know, you think your death, that it should, that it needs to mean something, right? I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that that's the, that that's the question that we should be living under. You feel me? Like, like that, that my death should mean something. Um, what is the question? Okay. So the question is this, like, and this is what, this is what has, has kind of, this is, this is what's encouraged and empowered and motivated and, and in some ways consumed me for my whole adult life, which is I am honored uh, to have the opportunity to engage in the fights and the struggles and, you know, the collective labor that I get to participate in. That's it. That I'm honored. It, I, I'm, 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 I'm grateful to be part of that. Right. So, so the day I walk off the planet, which could be later today, it could be 40 years from now, whatever, whatever that is. Right. Like my death is one, like it's meaningful for the people that I'm close to and that love me and all that shit. Right. Like yeah, I get, yeah, get yeah. it. You, you're going to, so, so there's that, but it's, it's not that, um, cause your, your question was like, what do I, so what was the phrasing of your question? What do you hope happens when you die? Right. Okay. See, so, so then it does it. So then, so then what I feel, the thing I think about, it's less, it's not about that. It's not about what do I hope happens when I, it, it's more, it's more about like, am, am I, am I, am I, am I engaging? Am I fully appreciating? Am I respecting? Am I reciprocating this privilege that I have? Right. To be to be around this, to be engaged in community with these communities of people that, that have invited me to be part of, of of an ongoing set of struggles. And I'm talking about folks who are patient with me, people who've taught me, you know, what I mean, as well as my people who I have the privilege of also teaching. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about not and I'm not just talking about organizations I've been part, that I'm mm-hmm. part of and have been part of. Right. Which are many. Um, I'm talking about the different overlapping communities of people who are engaged in a struggle for liberation, for at least for resistance, you know, Um, but who are also struggling toward the possibility of a futurity, right? Like people, people who understand that because this is hell, right? The people, a lot of us and a lot of people we care about don't have the capacity to actually imagine a future, Right. The future is bullshit. Right. The future is 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 some fucking fantasy that doesn't actually make sense because shit is so fucked up right now that that I don't know if tomorrow's gonna be here for me. Right. Like in, in, in the individual and a collective sense, right? So so if if the struggle right now is around trying to create the conditions to make it possible for the people who are most oppressed, who are most vulnerable to these systems of domination to be able to imagine futurity and live that shit, right. And to be able to live and imagine futurity, then, um, 
maybe my short answer to the question is my death is actually, it, it, it's, it's meaningless in that way, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that much because at that point, I'm trying to let go of the narcissism you know, of my death having to mean something. What matters to me is that I was, I, I had the privilege. I had, you know, I'm honored to be part of those different communities of people as flawed as they might be. Right. And I know this all sounds romantic as shit. Right. But I'm saying this, like I've been engaged in the struggle for 25 something. I mean, shit, man, I'm, I'm 40, like 30 years. Right. I know how fucked up it is. We make mistakes. Like sometimes we are abusive toward each other. Right. Sometimes we have the wrong agenda. We use the wrong language. We have people in our organizations who are fucked up and we should have known they were fucked up. We should have fucking kicked them out. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm saying like in a, in the most, in the most real way possible, right. Knowing how, contradictory how mistake ridden how flawed all that shit is right that the the thing that 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 draws me toward people is an affinity to fucking fight like that's what i want that's that's how i live um so would it be fair to say that what you hope happens is that that fight just continues that's it that's all there is man yeah that's all there is it's, it's part of the narcissism to narcissism to the political narcissism is this um especially because we're fucking embedding these liberal narratives of vindication and fucking justice, liberal notions of justice and shit all the time. Right. It's like a lot of folks enter these communities of struggle um, with a misled notion of what freedom and justice actually are, that there's some kind of end state that you achieve. Um, and then it, you know, and, and then, and then it's, you know, sushi buffets every day for all of us. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. by the way, that's, Sushi buffet every day. Like, that's my version of like, I, I grew up Catholic, man. Like, I don't believe in heaven anymore. Yeah, I'm a yeah, former yeah. Catholic. But right. if there was a heaven, mine would be fucking sushi every fucking day because I can do it. <laughs> okay, okay. I can okay. do it. The challenge. Um, I like that. You feel me? Like, I could do that. I could do that. Uh, but, but I'm saying, but I'm saying, I'm saying like, this is, this is really what we're getting at, right? I mean, this is, this is what we're really saying is that, is that it's not just the continuity of the fight. And I'm saying the fight, I hope people can understand what I mean by that at this point, right? It's not just fight for anything. It's like, no, collective collective you know people who are trying to struggle to create futurity for each other for themselves for other people around them that they care about and love um it, it's it's not even i don't hope for that because i already know that that yeah. shit is beyond me right. i don't fucking it doesn't need my hope yeah hope is for obama you know <laughs> fuck hope i don't need hope um even if i'm miserable and demoralized like what lifts me are, are people around me that are like dude what's wrong with you Right. You all right? Like, are you all right? Like, you seem down, man. Like, we're over yeah. here doing this. Why don't you hook up? You've been watching 40 we're seasons ha- of Survivor, man. You, okay? you know what I'm saying? Like, she, see what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, 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 like my, my one of my dear friends was here yesterday and, and reminded me, he's like, hey, yo, we're having a barbecue over there at, at so-and-so's on Saturday. You going? I hadn't like I hadn't RSVP yet. And this is one of the communities I'm engaged with. Right. Mm. It's this community of folks that are creating a department of black study here, um, which is fucking 50 years overdue. Um. Uh, and it, it, it is one of those moments that kind of lived in like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. Like I'm, you know, cause I'm, I'm not totally demoral. I wasn't in a moment of being totally demoralized, but I was like, you know, modestly just kind of down. And it was like, no, 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 this is, this is one of these communities of people whom I love, who I'm, whom I, who I fight alongside, sometimes fight with, but mostly fight alongside. Um, and, and it was like, yeah, here we're, we're convening, man. Like we're, we're having a moment of intentional celebration and joy you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. we, like, we're building community with these. It's like, she's reminding me one sentence. Like, hey, you coming? I'm like, fuck, yeah, yeah, I got to go. Yeah, I gotta, I'm coming to that. So like I right away, I was like, hey, I'm coming to that shit. Um, so I'm saying like, that's the fight too. That barbecue is the fight, man. Like that's part of the fight. 
yeah. right there, right? You're keeping each other alive. You're feeding each other. You're talking shit with each other and to each other. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say the fight. So I'm curious how you'll answer this one then. Funeral planning. <laughs> what, are your, what are your thoughts? Hard to avoid an individual dead body. <laughs> So yeah. what do you what do you do with that? What do you you know who you want there? Who you and any aspects of that plan? Yeah. What are you? Yeah. What do you think? I want a party, man. I have thought about this. Okay, I've thought about this. I want I want a party. Um, with what? What kind of party? I want I want the people who knew me to help curate the music. Um, you know what I mean like that's you know people who knew me and, and care about me to curate the music. Um, it doesn't have to be my music necessarily, but I want them to curate the music. So they'll throw some shit. There's some boys to men in there. Okay. All right. <laughs> they'll, they'll, right. they'll throw some. Obviously, PE. They'll to throw some the like end of Come on now. The road. You can't die and not have end of the road. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Come on. You can't be a you know a kid of the '90s and not have end of the. Okay. So so obviously that. I mean, yeah. what, shit. You know what? I'd be cool with it if somebody just decided to put that on loop. I'm good. All right. So everybody can just be fucking sad that I'm gone or whatever. Okay. Okay. But, but like, like put it this way, like I want to be a party primarily because I, I, I believe that, I believe that we, you know, human beings have no idea what consciousness is. Right. So like, no, so what freaks people out is the fact that when, when you die, it's the fear that your consciousness just kind of ends. Yeah. Right. And there's nothing there, right. you we know your body is, is going to now decay into the fucking ground again, or if it's your ashes, your ashes will just get scattered. But no, so what freaks people out is, is like what happens to consciousness and like all these, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a amateur, you know, student of quantum physics, physicists and whatnot and philosophers. Mm-hmm. Right. So like the whole thing about consciousness is really vexing. Nobody fucking understands what it is. Right. And where it comes from. Like, it's not, it's clearly not reducible. Or I think, I don't think it's reducible to just a bunch of, you know, neurons and synapses firing it. There's something going on, which is, which is at that quantum level that is probably beyond, you know, scientific, human scientific understanding at this point. Um, so for now, provisionally, I'm trying to embrace the fact that when I die, that's it, it's over. My ghost is not going to be chilling around here or I don't think it will, right? I don't think it will. Maybe it will, but I don't think it will. So the reason it needs to be a party is that, um, I want a commemoration of the shit that I believed in and that I did with people to be at the center that that should be at the center. Like that should be at the center of really, I think, I think um, when a lot of people who I, you know, love and respect pass, um, that's what we talk about. You know what I mean? We talk about the person and their individual, you know, their children. And if they had a loved one or if they had a significant other, whatever, we also talk about like all the shit we did with that person, right? The way we, the way in which we remember them. Um, the person who really got me thinking about this a lot, a lot actually was the late, great Clyde Woods, um, the author of Development Arrested, uh, um, Black studies professor at UC Santa Barbara just died really prematurely of cancer. Uh, you know, it's been, I think, 12 years or something, maybe longer now. But, you know, he was too young. He shouldn't have died. He just he was he just died too young. Um, and I had such respect for him. We weren't super close, but he but like but when we saw each other, it was as if we were close um, because we were in so much so many of the same circles. And like I looked up to him a lot. Um so you know, so he got me th- thinking about that, right? And then the way we uh, the way that that people around me talked about Clyde after he passed was it was all about that. It was about how much we love Clyde, all about Clyde's idiosyncrasies, right? All those things. 
It was also about all the different forms of work and community and, and, and you know, kind of creative production that people were engaged with with him. So, like, it was beautiful that way, right? Still is. Like, when his name comes up, we still talk about him that way. So, um, I think my aspiration is, is to be part of that tradition, right? I think it's somewhat of a tradition of people who try to engage in some form of liberatory, revolutionary, abolitionist, et cetera, collective work. That once you roll off this, you know, once you roll off of this, this, this existence, that that's how people will continue to talk about, about you is, is, is you inseparable from all this other shit that you did with people. So that's, that, that's my notion of what a funeral would be, right? It's like, let's get over that funeral part and like, and let's talk about this as a fucking celebration of everything that survives you in a nutshell, right? What is all the shit that survives you, you know, aside from people? Yeah. Aside from individual people, it's like what is all the shit you were engaged in that survives you? That's a thing. That's a thing to be celebrated and to be commemorated. But I still want voice to men playing. Well, it's funny <laughs> to imagine that conversation happening while end of the road is on repeat. <laughs> Just stories hey, of books and hey, articles. Dave, Dave, there's going to be a karaoke machine. Okay. Okay. That, that's that's mandatory. There'll be a karaoke machine, so like people might just have to take turns. You know, but, and the but, yeah. bit is that every you think it's going to be a new song every time, but everyone does karaoke. Maybe, the the yeah. Road. You know what? Now, now I might have to put that like in my. You know, this really- one I want to dedicate to Dylan. <laughs> anecdote here, although we've come, yeah, I like that. It might have to be like that. <laughs> so, hey, 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 wait, but wait, one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might even be down with it if there was a couple people that decided to start like conspiracy theories about how i'm actually not dead okay. i just thought of that, that okay. might be kind of cool okay i'd be down with that i'd be down with that i was just talking to my daughter about the other day because she she for the first time heard about the conspiracy theories about tupac still being alive and, yeah, then, and yeah. then she was like then who's the other one she i was like you mean elvis she's like yeah that guy elvis i heard yeah, yeah, yeah. that he's still alive. so so my, my daughter's 14 she doesn't know who the fuck elvis is and i'm glad um she knew who tupac was and i'm proud of that yeah. but, but no i'd be down with that i'd be down with people like yeah that dude he, yeah we just think he's dead he's what really with the what would the myth be? Where would you be? Where would you be camping? No, let it let it ride, people. Let it ride. Whatever you want it to be. Okay. Okay. Whatever you want it, it can be. It can be anything you want it to be at that point. Just just don't let me be a sellout. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, my next question is is born directly out of uh, my last one man show that gave birth to this podcast and. The, the show is set in the afterlife, and I'm introducing people to features of this afterlife. And um, one of these features is you get to fully relive one memory. Mm. So the rest of your memories aren't wiped. It's just like a room that you can pop into and out of yeah. whatever you want. But, but unlike other memories, you're, you're in it. However many times you want, whenever you want, but you have to pick one. So if that's the case, what memory do you choose to relive? I'm, I'm only 48 years old, man. Like, isn't it too early for you to ask me this? Man, you're like one of the <laughs> oldest people I've ever had on this podcast. Man. Oh, that's fucked up. You better, you better get with it, up. dude. That's fucked up. That's <laughs> fucked up. You better leave that shit in the podcast so people know how fucked up you are. You just said I'm one of the oldest people. That's hey, fucked up. Hey, man, I'm one of the oldest people on this podcast as well. Yeah, but you're the host, man. You just like, shit. I'll leave, I'll leave it up, in. Man. I'll leave it in for you. I'll make this the I'll make this the uh the promo. Oh, that hurt that hurt me in my in my insides that you just said that. How about this then? As a fuck you back, Dave. As a fuck you back. As a fuck you back. I can't answer your question. 
because I'm too young to experience that memory yet. Okay, it's too well, early. If you it's want your early. episode to be that short, then sure, you can you can <laughs> say fuck you to that question like that. No, no. Okay, let me let me let me let me really get at it. Um, the one, so it would be it would be one particular moment that I could I could revisit, like Groundhog Day, right? Like I could just come back into it. And yeah, just, that's a great. Yeah. That's a great. You can do it like Groundhog Day if you want to do it a little differently each time. Um. You know what keeps coming to my mind is the, this this momentous event that that I think is one of the one of the many points of um, origin and invigoration of, of of late 20th and 21st century abolition, which is the critical resistance, the first critical resistance meeting um, at, at UC Berkeley in 1998. Yeah. Um, so so if I'm allowed to be back there for those three days, September 25, 26, 27, 1998, right? During that conference, they called it a conference. It wasn't a conference. It was like, that was a movement building moment. It was like three and a half, 4,000 people were there from all over the place, man. Wow. Like this, it, it, it was I it was imagine nuts. it's so much smaller. That's interesting. Oh, no, no. It was it was nuts in the most beautiful way, man. Like, I mean, people, all kind of people not unregistered for the conference just showing up and fucking with UC Berkeley's campus, like in the best ways. It was awesome. I mean, people like there's sectarian organizations, like about like actually getting into fistfights with each other on the, you know, and then, and then it was, it was like that. It was a movement building session, like in that kind of way, right. Where people were like arguing, they had political beasts with each other. It was like that. So, so I'll say, I'll say, I'll give a two, I'll give a two layer answer to your question. I think if I was allowed an extended moment, I think I'd want to be back there so I could appreciate it. And was it just held on, the UC campus in classrooms and it was all over, man. It was there and it was just off campus too. Like we actually took over the UC Berkeley campus for three days. The organization took over. like we, we exploited access to the university to actually make it a public space for three days. So there was unhoused people who are usually policed off campus. I remember they were there. They were actually going to fucking proceedings. Like people I recognize from the street because I would say what's up to them all the time. Um, there were, there were, you know, people flying in from out of town and just rolling it. Students that were sleeping um, on the floor of other people's, you know, apartments and whatnot and dorm rooms and um, people just, man, there was people who had just been released from prison and some people even from jail um, that it was one of the first places that they went was this meeting, right? Wow. Like it was one of the first places they went outside wherever it was that they were living. One of the first places they went was here. And they, a lot of them just because they wanted fucking support, right? They, they were like, I'm trying to get a job. Like, I don't know what to do. And they found it and they fucking found that shit there. So I think if I'm the two layers of my answer to question, on the one hand, I would go back to that three day period because I did not fully, I, I know I didn't, I didn't even come close to appreciating what it meant mm. during the time in which I lived primarily because of this, because in this, this, this kind of, I think amplifies an earlier point that I made. I was a fucking gopher, man. Like I was running around fetching things. I was an usher during the big plenary sessions. Like I was doing work i was working all of us were right even the celebrity people you know i mean the high profile people they were working too but like i was a measly ass grad student that was like happy to be invited into the organizing collective i felt useless most of the time but during the conference i felt very useful because i could work right Mm -hmm. i could fucking run around and do shit and i was exhausted every day um and i like got called into all kind of all kind of different um things that really just required my physical labor you know what i mean like yeah, that's what I was. That was my role. I was a worker and I was fucking pleased and happy to be part of that. Um, what it also meant was that I didn't fully understand or appreciate 
the impact and the historical significance of what we're doing. So if I could go back, being my 48-year-old self, if I could go back and experience that as, you know, my 25-year-old self in 1998, I would. Like, I would go there and I would, like, I would fucking take it all in, man. I would take, I would still want to do all that work I was doing, but I would, I would experience it differently because I would understand exactly what was kind of kicking off here, right? It was, it was, it was big. And then if I had to pick, so that's the first layer. If I had to pick yeah. one very specific moment within those three days, right. the, the thing that keeps coming to my mind was when Geronimo Gijaga, formerly known as Geronimo Pratt, um, when Geronimo Gijaga unexpectedly showed up at one of the major plenary sessions and walked down the middle aisle to greet everybody. He had just recently been released um, from prison as a, as a you know, un- unrecognized U.S. political prisoner. And he just showed up. I don't think, I think only a few people knew he was coming. So he fucking surprised everybody and walked down the middle of the aisle of the auditorium and just... Uh, you know, gave, gave a beautiful message to everybody. And, I, I, and, I, and the thing I remember the most that stood out because it was so contrary to the political culture of much of the Bay Area activists, so-called left at that point, was he urged us, he said, y'all need to stroke each other, love each other, you know, support each other, like enjoy each other. Um, and I'm like, fuck, man, like, I wish more people would say that shit because like the stuff that happens out here in the Bay is like, it's usually people fucking contesting for territory. It's motherfuckers like Van Jones, right? Trying to front and fake the radicalism and really what they're doing is opportunistic and they want to be on, you know, I thought that dude wanted to be mayor and senator and president, which I think he did. So I think the CNN gig was his, was his like, was his second place. Okay. Um, but that dude was somebody that we, we had to scrap with him all the time because of his opportunism back in the day. And I think it's well known at this point, what his opportunism is shaped like, but, but I'm saying like, there's such a toxic culture of, of, of organizing and activism in the Bay area. I think to a lot of extent it, it, there still is. Um, but to have Geronimo Gijaga come out there like that and, and, and just, and just tell us, you know, and you could, you could just feel like light emanating from him and shit, man. Cause this is somebody who did, he did his fucking time as a political prisoner unapologetically. And tell me you know? more. Cause I, th- this is the first time I've heard his name. Okay. Geronimo. So he, so, so in, 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 in the older history textbooks, he'll be known as Geronimo Pratt, right? Okay. That's a slave name. He changed his name to Geronimo Gijaga. The very short version of it is that. Uh, Geronimo Gijaga, um, you know, working class black man was, was, you know, he, he was in Vietnam. He was like, well-known, he won medals and shit, like killing so-called Viet Cong and shit. He writes about this, talks about this. Um, the late, he, he passed the late Geronimo Gijaga. And during his, his, his time in Vietnam is where he began to have this political awakening. And he, the short version of it, he deeply questioned what it was he was engaged in what it was that he had been militarized uh, to do and uh, comes, comes back to the United States and repurposes his weapons expertise, his military tactical strategic expertise to support um, the black Panther party in particular, black liberation army to a significant extent um, to support them because they were actually already engaged in asymmetric, um, you know, political and proto genocidal war with the U S government. And local police departments. So he's like, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. Right. And he said, here, we're going to do arms training. We're going to do self-defense training. We're going to understand what the tactics are when the police come and they converge. This is how we respond. So Geronimo, Geronimo Gijaga, like he, he was responsible. If it wasn't for Geronimo Gijaga's training, there would have been a lot more um, Panthers 
and other black folks eliminated by the police, by the CIA, by the combination of the FBI, the police, and um, other parts of the U.S. government, including undercover counterintelligence program operations. Um, so that's what he became known for. And then, like many other political prisoners during that period, he was, you know, set up to be convicted of something that he, um, I think, factually didn't do. And he and he served multiple decades in prison as a political prisoner, um, unrecognized political prisoner. U.S. doesn't recognize that it holds political prisoners. Um, right. So, so that's Geronimo Gijaga. And so he had just been released, you know, I think, I think not just, I think days before, before the critical resistance, you know, movement building session happened in September, 1998. And he just, that, that and, and Geronimo Gijaga just showed up and right, was, in the middle of this. And he it, immediately it was, it was, speaks. So there was, yeah, there no, he, space made he walked down. Yeah. I think, I think a couple people knew he was coming. Okay. So, so there it was, was there like, was, there was scheduled that he would talk, but not every, no, it that. wasn't scheduled. That's what I'm trying to tell you, man. Like, okay, I don't okay. think it wasn't even scheduled. It was a surprise. Yeah. 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 In the, middle, the middle of what, was, do you remember yes, what the session was? Yes. It was one of the evening plenary sessions. So there's like hundreds standing room only hundreds and hundreds of people in this auditorium. Like everybody's excited and hyped. It's hot. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like speakers after speakers, everybody's excited. They're like, we don't know what we're doing. We, we weren't even calling it abolition at that point, by the way. Right. This is, this is, this, this meeting was about, um, building a movement of resistance against the prison industrial complex. That was the general language that folks were using. We were trying to build a new movement to resist the existence of the prison industrial complex. And it was the premise of, and it was, everybody was there, man. Like, you know, attorneys, you, young people, meaning people under the age of 18, you know what I mean? Um, of course, scholar, you know, professional scholars, longtime community organizers, like civil people involved in the civil rights struggles mm-hmm. from the sixties, from the fifties on forward, formerly incarcerated people. We had like, you know, this is before the days of Zoom and live stream, but we we had technology set up so we could we could actually have organizing sessions and conversations with people who are currently incarcerated um, for for wow. some of the prison facilities that allowed that kind of thing. So it was like a whole spectrum of people were there. Um, so it was that kind of room. That was the cross section of people. This was not a room full of stuffy academics. It was the opposite right, of right, that. Right, it was right. wild. It was a wild room. It was a wild auditorium full of people, excited as hyped up as shit, not knowing quite exactly what we were doing, but just excited as fuck because now we're fighting. Like now we are building. What I said, well, all that shit I was saying earlier about the fight. This was what the fight was. We were trying to. We were figuring out what the fight was right yeah. there, right. Those three. That's why I want to be there for those three days again. We were figuring out what the fight was. We're, so it was one of those sessions. It's the plenary, which means everybody's supposed to converge there. Nothing else is going on in the meeting except that. Mm-hmm. So like all kind of people are around. They're buzzing around too, right outside the room. And I remember in the middle of it, auditorium lights on, and then like the doors open. It's noisy, so it's not like it was quiet. And then Geronimo Gijaga shows up. It was like right. noisy people talking. And then and then you just kind of like it's something that just drew your attention. There's a movement of of like a small group of people down the middle aisle of the auditorium, and Geronimo Gijaga was walking with a contingent, a small contingent of people that were just watching his back. Um, and then you just heard a buzz and people just started like roaring. Like they couldn't believe he was there. Um, and then he, he took, he took the, the podium and he, he didn't, he didn't talk for very long. And I remember he was, he was so soft spoken, mm-hmm. right? Like in, 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 um, my arrogant 25 year old self learned a lesson in humility at that moment too. Right. Like, like the sense of humility that Geronimo Gijaga had as he spoke was probably thing, the thing that impressed me most deeply, even more than the words he actually said, right? But but just the sense of humility that that came from him, which was, you know, I, I don't think I do a great job at it, but I try to I, mean, I try to I try to find my way into that. But it was this, this it was it could only have come from somebody who unapologetically served several decades as a political prisoner because he was not sorry for having 
repurposes U.S. military training um, to support Black liberation struggle and Black radicalism and even Black underground guerrilla war um, for, for the sake. So, I, so if I had to pick one specific, you know, time compressed moment to revisit, it would probably, it would, I think right now, as you talk to me on, you know, May 23rd, 2022, it would probably be that little moment when Geronimo Gijago came. Cause I think I need to be there again. Do you remember what he was wearing? Yeah, I mean, he was wearing, he was wearing, he was wearing the most prototype, like 1990s, you know, black US based militant, African inspired okay. garb, okay. like straight up, straight up. It, I think there's probably pictures on, uh, there may be pictures of it on the internet, maybe on the critical resistance website. I hope there are, um, you know, we might even have video of it somewhere on YouTube, but like, it was, it was, I, that's how I remember it. So like, don't kill me if I'm wrong, people. But I remember <laughs> yeah, him, yeah, yeah. I remember him coming forward, like, like some somebody somebody of his age range, right? Like somebody of his age range mm-hmm. who's U.S. born and raised, you know, black militant, black revolutionary. Like that's the shit you wore, okay. <laughs> right? It was like yeah. that, you know, because um, um, this is this is like this is like post Panthers, right? So he was wearing he was wearing African inspired clothing. That's what okay. I remember. And yeah. was do you, was there like a weird mic handoff moment? Like was someone else speaking? No, man, it was, was so there? graceful. It was so graceful. It was like it was like. Um, Moses, man, uh, you know, okay. fuck it. The, like, like, it and you, you know, the, the waves didn't need the part, but you felt them part anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, like people were clear in space. It was like, holy shit, fucking Geronimo's here. And I was like, oh my God, I knew who Geronimo, yeah, Pratt, yeah. Geronimo Gijago was. I was like, I was, I was an usher, by the way. That was my role at that, through most of, I was like, I was standing in like, I remember I was in the left back corner of the auditorium, my role. And I had one of those stupid little, you know, earpiece <laughs> microphones in yeah, case yeah. there was trouble. Right. Um, you know, so I was back there just making sure people got seated and whatnot. And I remember he showed up and he starts walking down. And I'm like, holy shit, that's fucking Geronimo Jaga. Um, I'm like, what the fuck is he doing here? Is he okay? And, but it was like, so he like floated down that middle aisle, like all the fucking waves parted this way. You know, and then and then in my memory, in my memory, whoever was at the microphone at the podium just kind of disappeared. Right. Like yeah, they probably right, they, they right, just, they right. just and he just and he just gracefully just floated up onto that stage, you know, took the mic for like he couldn't. He, he I don't think he spoke for more than five minutes. Wow. Right. He didn't give a big, long speech. He just wanted to greet everybody, express his appreciation and like feel us. You know, uh so yeah, and then, and then he then he just as gracefully, I think, um, I think he walked back. I think he walked back out. I think he walked back out, and then and then that was yeah, that was the first and only time I ever saw saw Geronimo Gijaga in person. So I think the other reason I would I would want to be back there is because I'd want to I would want to indulge myself by like introducing myself to him and yeah 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 and what I didn't get to do that. So I think I'd want to do that because that was the only time I ever got to see him in person. So the question is, what's your coma then? Because for me, my month-long mm. coma was a a jagged narrative. Of, there's a sobriety narrative there. It's probably like the clearest thing. Mm. Okay. Um, but it's there. I was one person before and a different person slowly after. And I'm wondering for you, what's one of those coma moments for you? Oh, you mean that I've actually, that I've actually like made it through. I've actually lived through and made it through. 
Yeah. Or, or you try like, me to imagine, or you ask me to imagine what a coma. No, my no, coma no, no, would no. Be. Metaphorically. Like, okay. Right, what is, okay, what is a moment like that for you where before you were one version of yourself and after, and it can be, it doesn't have to be epic or grandiose. It yeah. can be like a tiny little thing and shit just changed. I mean, I, I can't, I can't think of anything other than when my two kids were were born when they entered this realm. <laughs> I yeah. can't, I can't, it's like, that's it. Like, that's it. That's, um, you know, there was a part of me that necessarily had to go away. You know, we can say it died. Um, we can all say I killed it. We can say they killed it because kids <laughs> fucking kill you, man. Right. I'm just being, I'm just being honest. Like, sure. I'm just, like I feel what's like that, my kids what's fucking, that part? Um, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be mundane and then deep about it. Right. Yeah. The part that, that insisted on nobody eating or leaving trash in my car. Okay. Right. That you do. I'm telling you, like, I think I probably have some obsessive compulsive disorder tendencies. I okay. do not have OCD because I respect the fact that for those of us who struggle with OCD, it's like, it's a serious, you know, it's a, it's an illness, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying I have it, but I definitely have the tendencies one of the ways in which it manifested was that I needed my car to look and be a particular kind of way. And then the first time that my oldest decided that he was going to take his fucking apple juice box and just chuck it to the side of the minivan and dump that shit on the floor and then piss in his car seat. And so much that it overflowed onto the fucking, I had to pull, man, it was one of these, you, I had a, we had to use Toyota Sienna. I had to find out, I had to like pull that bench seat off of its anchors and put it on the lawn in order to hose that shit down. Which I didn't even think, I didn't think I would ever have to learn how to do that. Was it like a felt seat or was it like a sort it's of felt. leather? No, it, okay. No, okay. no, no, no. It was like, so it, which, this which is worse. stayed in there. Which is yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So never, the piss never went away. No, yeah. I did not warn whoever I sold it to that it had been pissed in. Fucking <laughs> sue me. Um, but like, I remember that moment. Um, so like, so, so, that's my coma is that my coma is, is like realizing that um, I could not be the same way in the world anymore. And that to whatever extent I try to be, that's why you could say I'm a failed fucking parent. Right. Because like there's parts of me that still survive, uh-huh. but probably should not have survived parenting two people, but now they're 18 and 14, man. Um, and like I said, if, if they, if, if, if they do good shit in the world, it's mostly in spite of me, not because of me. You know, um, but I'll say that's the coma. The, co- the coma is, is them coming in the world. You, you, you probably should generally come out a different person once you take responsibility for right. rearing people, raising people, trying to do the right thing around them. Um, but, but also trying to do it in a place that is hell, you know, trying to do, trying to do it surrounded by hell, you know, um, and I'm talking, and I say that out of a place of class privilege, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not sure. saying, I don't mean to be easy with those words. But um, I think one thing that, that, that a lot of us can learn um, that are, especially those are in positions of relative class privilege, meaning that we're not worried about, you know, where we're going to be sleeping tomorrow night and and whether the bills are going to get paid this month, um, whether we're going to eat, like, that's what I mean by relative class privilege. You know, despite that, that shit is not, that shit does not mitigate the hell that surrounds you. Mm-hmm. Not, 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 not if you're actually trying to live in this world rather than insulate yourself from it. If you're trying to live in this world, then that hell is around you. And so like that shit is all around the parenting thing and being somebody's, somebody's dad. Um, so that's, I think, I think that would probably be my comment. And, and so what I, what I mean by that, it's not merely just like the night they were born. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although, although that's obviously memorable. 
but it's like that that slow uneven process that i continue to go through um that requires that i put a bunch of shit about who i am and the way i exist aside like those things can't really like i can't i can't allow those those kinds of ways of thinking and being to continue because I am, I need, I'm trying to embrace this other responsibility over here. And you know, that's the and, deeper yeah. level than keeping the car clean. I mean, I mean, it's, but it's the same, man. Because sure, here's sure, what I mean sure. It. Here's why. Because but you said two levels. That's why I'm Yeah, asking. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, so like there's that, right? Like there's that because that, that fucking hurt, man. Like it hurts when I go <laughs> yeah. in my car. Like my kid, my oldest drives my car. He fucking trashes my car, man. Like, and he can watch this one day or listen to this one day and he'll know I'm, dad speaks the truth, son. <laughs> For um, my dad, it was yo. slamming the trunk down. He hated oh. when we would leave, when we would go yeah. to school, we would take our backpack out of the trunk. And we didn't, we never meant to, but every time <laughs> we would slam it down. And he was like on his last nerve. He was like, please like, do not stop. slam the trunk. That's the least of my troubles, man. Like every other day, there's a new gouge on my rims. All right. <laughs> like, like, and nobody knows who did it. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't <laughs> me. It wasn't right. me. It was mom. Nah, I don't know who did it. Um, so, so no, it, it, it's, it's, it's this notion that all these things I insist on being orderly, right? Like mm. on, on, on existing certain ways, like, no, man, kids are chaos. You know, they actually like that. That is the lesson that you hopefully can learn is like they come in and this, they are chaotic. Like they create disorder and that's their job, man. Like it's not a criticism. It's like that is their fucking job. And, 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 and I struggle with that. I struggle with that all the time to this day. One of them is about to go to college. That's why I'm wearing my goofy ass Dartmouth dad t-shirt. Okay, so, nice, nice, nice. I take so much parental pride in what he's doing. He's going there to play baseball and hopefully learn something. Oh shit. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all good. You know, my daughter, my daughter like sees me more than most people on this planet because I think, you know, I think she shares my DNA um in some really rudimentary and fundamental ways. So like we recognize each other in these ways. So I think that's why she acts like she hates me all the time. So I think a deep part of her does fucking hate me because it's like the worst. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the worst parts of what so she sees it. Like so she sees us. I'm saying like that's the stuff I'm talking about, man. And so like she does shit on purpose, which is again, that's a kid's job, right? Kids' job is to do shit on purpose to fuck with you as a parent, right? As a parent. That's the part that's not chaotic because that shit is purposeful. It's intentional and that is their job is to fuck with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and the point is that you love them, not just in spite of that, but like you love them in, in some crazy ass way, like you love them because of that. Right. Because that, there, because because there are moments where they'll tell you, like when you snap out of the coma. Right. Because this, this is what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about like the fucking dad coma. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Like those moments where you snap out of the coma is where they fucking tell you. It's like, yeah, I was I, I fuck with you. I fuck with you because <laughs> I get to. <laughs> right and they laugh about it they laugh yeah, about yeah, it yeah. ha 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 yeah. like yeah I, we know you hate that shit that's why we do it <laughs> right and i remember this like when my oldest when he was like one he, one and a half i don't know he, he had just started eating solid food in his high chair um and and like he, you know fucking babies are messy and shit right but but i was like he was extraordinarily messy like beyond i mean he knows it too yeah, yeah. i remember i was looking at him once i was like dude i was in fucking he was just coming into language so like he understood what i was saying at some level i, I was like i was like dude what, what, why are you making such a mess and he this this kid baby he looks me straight dead in my eye like picks up whatever was on his plate extends his chubby ass right arm all the way out to the side 
of the high chair as far as it would go and drop that shit on the floor right in front of me. Did he laugh? Deadpan. Yo, deadpan. <laughs> Not even thinking it was fun. He wasn't even laughing. He just looked at me deadpan. He's like, who's the fucking boss now? That's the face I see in your uh, your headshot. That's the that's why I have that face in those headshots. Because I'm somebody's I'm some people's dad, man, and I'm you know I'm a terrible parent. So like, <laughs> but I'm saying that's 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 the coma, man. That's the coma, and it's also simultaneously how you come out of it. Is like is like when that baby decides that they're going to say, you know what, fuck you, I'm the boss. Boom, you know, welcome yeah. back to the world. Welcome back to the world, bro. <laughs> That's the show. Thank you very much to Dylan Rodriguez for coming on the show. Thank you to you for listening. I really appreciate it. Check out those show notes. They are especially packed this week with resources to follow Dylan, to learn more of his work, and to join the Patreon, which is the best way to support me and the show. I would be incredibly grateful. And I promise to keep making a great, utterly unique fucking podcast Uh, but I say that humbly until next week remember you are a mist only human and human beings